0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agriculture literacy discussion. This podcast is hosted by me, Will Fett, from the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, and by Katie Carpenter of New York Agriculture in the Classroom. Throughout this season, we'll be joined by friends of Agriculture in the Classroom from across the country as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture, and we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. As I said, my name is Will Fett, but today we have a special treat and your guest host is Jessica Jansen from Oregon Agriculture in the Classroom. Today's episode comes from the Beaver State. Jessica, I'll turn it over to you to tell us a little bit more about the unique agriculture of Oregon.
1: Thanks so much, Will. As Will said, my name is Jessica Jansen, and I'm so honored to be the guest host today and share a little bit about Oregon agriculture with all of you. Today we're going to be learning about honeybees. We'll start by hearing from expert Carolyn Brees, a research assistant at Oregon State University. Then we'll travel to Central Oregon and hear from Dawn Alexander, a fifth grade teacher at Tom McCall Elementary School in Redmond, Oregon. Dawn will share with us all about how she incorporates agriculture into her classroom and specifically about a project centered around honeybees. Thanks so much for listening today and I hope you enjoy learning a little bit more about the pollinators that support our food supply. So, I'm here today with Carolyn Brees, who's a research assistant at the Honeybee Lab at Oregon State University. Thanks so much for joining me today, Carolyn. Thank you. So, tell us a little bit about what your role is with Oregon State University and how that contributes to the honeybee industry
2: as a whole. Well, I work in the OSU Honeybee Lab, and our focus is to do research on honeybee health and nutrition and pretty much anything that will help our honeybees be strong and healthy and ready for pollination and honey production. I am a research assistant, so my role is to make sure our bees are healthy and strong for whatever experiments we have coming up. So I may be getting hives ready for a feeding experiment. So we may have 10 or 20 colonies that we need. They need to be identical and ready to be fed something that we want to take a look at. And then we do a bunch of data collection, and that will tell us whether that thing that we're interested in will help the honeybees or not. And we try to do a lot of research that is practical, that is um, very relevant for beekeepers in Oregon to keep their bees healthy.
1: Awesome. So what is your background? What brought you to this role?
2: My background is in biology. I got my bachelor's in biology at the University of Oregon in Eugene. After that, i Did a lot of bird surveys seasonally. So I spent several years roaming around the West doing bird surveys at 4.30 in the morning. (laughs) And then eventually I got to grad school where I studied bark beetles and prescribed fire at Northern Arizona University. What brought me to bees is while I was in grad school, I just, I really liked bees and I read voraciously about them. But because I moved so much, I was never able to have my own hive. And then one fine day, I moved somewhere where I thought I was going to be for a little while. And somebody offered to let me have bees on their property. So that kind of set off my hobby as a beekeeper. It was a temporary job. And I found this one that I'm in now just by being in the right place at the right time. I feel really lucky to have found it and that I'm in it now because I really do love it. It's a lot of fun and I feel like I'm learning something new every day. Tell us a little bit about what a typical day in your job looks like. Well, it varies from season to season, of course, because I'm managing insects. (laughs) So in the summer, I'll manage the colonies just as any beekeeper would. So spring is a very busy time of year because colonies are growing and they need to be managed for swarming, making sure they have all the resources that they need, looking for pests and diseases or any other problems, maybe with the queen and so on. So in spring, I'm a standard beekeeper, but when it comes time for research projects, I'll help design projects or set them up for um, whatever we're going to be doing. In the spring and summer, I also do a lot of workshops for beginning beekeepers, sometimes commercial beekeepers, and we teach classes for OSU students as well. So there's a lot of education and outreach that I do. So a typical day might be I'll go and manage a honeybee colony in the morning and then in the afternoon I'll go teach a workshop and take people around the hives. But then in the winter, bees don't really hibernate, but they do clump up in clusters in their hives and they just huddle in there and keep warm. They don't fly and it's not really a good idea to get in there and do very much managing because that disturbs them. So it's kind of a nice time for us to take a little bit of a break from our field work. So in the winter, I do a lot of online teaching for mostly OSU students and preparing for the next season. So writing grants, coming up with ideas, planning ahead, and so on.
1: That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about kind of the relationship that you have with the greater beekeeping community and also agricultural communities. You mentioned that You try to keep your projects really relevant to both beekeepers and kind of the greater industry as a whole. How does that fit in? Why is that so important?
2: Commercial beekeepers are much different than backyard beekeepers. So commercial beekeepers may have between 500 and 5,000 colonies, and they primarily keep them for pollination services. So they'll take them on trucks and move them from whatever crop needs pollination at the time to the next one to the next one and so on. So they're they're constantly moving their bees around from crop to crop. So they perform a very crucial role in agriculture, but they also are faced with a lot of problems like pesticide use or pests and diseases that the bees have, nutritional stress. The list is endless really. And so beekeepers have it rough, commercial beekeepers especially because their role is so crucial for the pollination of these crops that they have to have these honeybee hives very strong and robust to be able to pollinate. We try to do as many experiments and studies as we can that directly affects them. For example, maybe there's some kind of nutritional supplement that we could give the bees to help them be a little bit stronger when nutrition isn't so ideal in a particular crop that they're pollinating. Awesome.
1: So you also do work, you mentioned, with more of the backyard beekeepers. How much of your work is with commercial and how much is with the smaller scale hobby style?
2: That's a good question. For the commercial beekeepers, I think we help them more in our role as researchers. We design our projects with them in mind to help them keep their hives very robust for pollination. But when it comes to the backyard beekeepers, those research projects will also affect them, but we do a lot more outreach for our backyarders. So we have the master beekeeper program. We have all kinds of classes and workshops to help support new beekeepers and getting started it's a lot harder than you would think to keep bees alive (laughs) and so we try to really um, offer a lot of information a lot of classes and how to provide nutrition how to make sure their pests and diseases are in check and just general colony maintenance
1: awesome so why is it important why is this a needed role for you all at the honeybee lab
2: because it directly affects our food supply in terms of pollination. Our lab does a lot of these projects in order to keep bees healthy, whether you're a commercial beekeeper or a hobbyist. And bees are important in our ecosystem, but they're also important in agriculture. We have some crops that are absolutely dependent on crop pollination by honeybees. If we didn't have bees, we would either have very expensive foods, some, some of them that require this pollination, or they would be uh, misshapen or lower yield, or we may not have some of these foods at all. So having bees be healthy and ready to pollinate is really important for a lot of our food supply.
1: Wow, that's huge. I'm sure it's also a lot of those fruits and vegetables, nuts, like a lot of those foods that are so nutritious and have a lot of nutrient density as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. Bees pollinate some of our superfoods like blueberries and cherries and yes, all kinds of fruits. But I think a lot of people also don't know that bees pollinate vegetable seed. So seed crops are a very important part of agriculture. A lot of people wouldn't think that we need bees to grow carrots because it's a root that grows underground, but we need bees for carrot seed. And Oregon produces a lot of vegetable seed turnip seed, cabbage seed, tons of carrot seed. So having strong bees ready to pollinate these these flowering crops for seed is also as important as the berries and fruits that we love. That's great. Yeah, I guess
1: I myself, I've seen the the bees out there in those fields, but never had connected it to the importance of those seed crops because everything starts from a seed. So it's so important to have those crops be pollinated as well. What are some other of those misconceptions that people have around bees?
2: A lot of people are afraid of bees because they sting. They do sting. So that's not a misconception, but they're not dangerous. We don't have very aggressive bees here in Oregon. Most of our bees are very nice and gentle. They'll defend their colony for sure, but they're really nothing to be afraid of. So I think... They get some bad press sometimes, <laughs> especially when we have movies called The Killer Bees or Revenge of the Swarm <laughs> or something like that. Bees can actually be quite gentle and, and really fun to work with.
1: That's awesome. So that kind of ties in nicely to thinking about your job again. What are some of the best parts of your job, things that you like the most about the work that you do?
2: There are a lot of really great parts of my job and it's hard to pick out the very best things. But my favorite times in my job are when it's an 80 degree day and the bees are on a nectar flow. They're bringing in tons of nectar to make honey. Everything's feeling good. And we've call those the glory days. We're really excited about the bees. We try to do different manipulations with them because they're in a really great state. They're very healthy and they can be manipulated without a lot of interruption. So for example, we'll try to raise queens at that time, or we'll try to maximize honey production with a different kind of method or something like that. So the glory days, those are my favorite times in my job. There are hard times in the job. It's very hard to keep bees alive. And You can do as much as you can to a colony and it still can die. Every beekeeper loses colonies. So the worst part of my job is when a colony dies and I have to pack it up and bring the boxes out of the field and into storage. That's always such a bummer, especially when you're just trying as hard as you can. Bees have it rough. So do beekeepers. (laughs) So there are definitely some times where it's not always sunny skies and glory days.
1: Absolutely. It's the kind of that whole cycle of of life that we all experience in many ways, but especially when you're putting the work in and you feel responsible. I'm sure that's a whole different element that's put in there as well. Yeah, exactly. What are the challenges that the Honeybee Lab is working to solve in the bee industry?
2: One thing that our lab has been devoted to is understanding honeybee nutrition. When bees pollinate different crops, they're placed in a blooming crop for weeks at a time. So for example, they may go to California and they'll be pollinating almonds for four weeks, and then they come back to Oregon, the next crop may be pears or cherries, and they're staying in that crop for the next several weeks. And so they have one source of nutrition during each of these periods, and that may or may not cause nutritional stress. Um, That's something that our lab is looking at, trying to see if they need more of a varied diet, as most organisms do. So we have found that with a monocrop, monofloral resource, that there is a bit of stress to honeybees. And so we're also now looking at what exactly is missing and could that be added back into their diet and make them more stronger when they're in pollination. So that's a project that I really like because agriculture is changing and it affects this natural pollination process in ways that we didn't know. So that's one thing that we're studying. We also are trying to study what kind of mite treatments work well for honeybees. The honeybee has a parasite called the varroa mite and it's introduced from Asia. It came over in the 80s and since then it has created so many problems for bees and beekeepers. And it seems like We're trying to find product after product to help get rid of these mites on bees, and we're finding resistance. It's just getting harder and harder every single year. So what we do at the lab is we do different trials on new miticides or the timing of different miticides and how best they can be applied. So that's another project that I like to do that we're doing. We've got a new project with queens and how um, commercial beekeepers can access queens earlier than they could normally by overwintering them. We've done a lot of different projects. It all really boils down to how we're able to keep bees healthy and robust for pollination.
1: Awesome. So can you describe a little bit about kind of the maintenance of a colony? You talked about the nutritional requirements. So do beekeepers feed their colonies as they're out pollinating, say an almond orchard? Is that something that they're constantly doing? Or is it more when they're transitioning and different things like that?
2: Well, both. It really depends on the season, the time of year, the climate, and the particular weather conditions of the year. So, bees are very good at, at foraging. They can fly up to three miles away to look for nectar and pollen. So, they're very efficient at doing that, but sometimes it's just not available. So, that may be if the bees were pollinating almonds and the almond bloom is about finished, the flowers are dropping. There are thousands and thousands of colonies in this area and no more forage. And so that creates a real problem for bees and beekeepers because they have these growing colonies, but no forage available. At that point, they may need to go in and feed. Another instance where we might need to feed bees is if in the springtime, When a colony is growing and flowers are starting to bloom and they're just starting to get into their spring configuration, then we get three solid weeks of rain. The bees can't fly to go forage and get more nectar, and they're eating their stores really quickly because the colony is growing. And so that's where beekeepers need to intervene as well and supplement their feed until the bees can fly again and get out and get their own nectar. There are also some newer problems that we're seeing that make us need to feed our bees. For example, colony density in a certain area, it seems like we're putting more and more colonies in an area where if it were in nature, we would have maybe one or two hives in a very large area, but instead we're putting 40 in at a time. So we have a lot more bees competing with a limited amount of resources. So in those cases, if the colony density is really high, we may need to feed to keep these bees sustained. It really depends on the time of year. August and September are so dry in Oregon and there is really nothing available for bees. Very few crops are available with with enough nectar and the flowers in the environment are just really dried up and crispy at that point. So we oftentimes feed at that point as well. So there's a lot of different times in the year where we need to feed them. But in the springtime, in late spring, they can bring in so much, like a a good blackberry flow, they can fill box after box after box full of honey. And sometimes that can sustain them for months. And even if you're a good beekeeper, and you don't take too much honey off, you may not need to feed your bees all the way through the winter if you can make sure that they're storing enough.
1: Wow, I'm sure that's when it gets to kind of that fine art and probably lots of years of experience knowing exactly what to... Take off and when to feed and what to feed, and all of those variables. Mm -hmm, Exactly. I'm sure that's probably very common in the backyard beekeeping classes, people that have tried it and realized wow, there's a lot more to this than I initially.
2: Thought. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And sometimes people get into bees because they have seen their grandparents keep bees and they have this image of the hive in their beautiful meadow and it was so easy and they never touched their bees except for when it was time to harvest honey. But things have really changed since then and it is a lot harder. So we may be feeding, whereas in their grandparents' days they may not have needed to feed. And then again, the introduced pests and diseases that you have to manage now versus back then. So it's a it's a very different kind of beekeeping. And unfortunately, it does drive people away sometimes because it is so challenging. And there's really nothing like that horrible feeling of packing up your boxes cuz your hive died. That's a real bummer. It does happen, but that's what we are trying to do with the Master Beekeeper Program. We're trying to provide long-term education for new beekeepers so they can learn all of these different nuances in colony management. And we provide support for them to try and keep their bees alive through the winter.
1: Fascinating. So kind of in this thought of the changes over time, what are some of the technological innovations that have happened in beekeeping? How has that part evolved
2: That's a hard one. There's some technology involved with hive sensors. People are always coming up with ways to measure the temperature, humidity, and weight of a colony, and so we can kind of monitor bees that way. But there really isn't a substitute for going in and and looking in a colony and using your experience to tell you what may or may not be right in the colony, and then also how to address that. There have been some very interesting advances in pollination in terms of technology. There are new robotic drones that will pollinate a crop or some kind of pollen spray that helps pollinate a crop. So people are coming up with ways to pollinate crops without bees. And that's very fascinating to me. It's fascinating, but in my opinion, it's a little misguided because people doing this are addressing a problem by using artificial means rather than going back to figuring out what isn't working in nature. So instead of maybe dialing back pesticides or improving the landscape for forage and habitat, we're trying to come up with a band-aid effort with our technology. So that's why technology bothers me just a little bit in the beekeeping scene. But it's there, and I do like the creativity of it. I think eventually we're going to come around to some creative solutions for beekeeping problems. But some innovations that aren't that techie, I guess, a lot of researchers are trying to breed better bees. So they are trying to get genetic material from other bee populations, or they're trying to breed for some characteristics such as disease resistance or resistance to the varroa mite or for honey production. So there's a lot of bee breeding efforts that I think are really excellent and hopefully we'll be able to use fewer pesticides on our own bees because of that kind of bee breeding.
1: How cool. Very innovative. Again, another thing that I don't know many people realize that there's breeding just like in other species of animals that can also be done with insects. Fascinating. What do you think the trends are for the future of the industry as a whole?
2: We're always going to have crops that need to be pollinated. And in fact, we're going to have more and more. So we're going to continue to need bees and beekeepers to to provide the pollination services. Some of the neat things that we are seeing right now are crop growers are starting to increase habitat for bees to help with nutritional stress. So there's forage rows that are being planted along with the crop. So there's a little diversity in the pollen and nectar that are being collected, but also in over time. So once the crop is done blooming, There is still going to be a a hedgerow of a different kind of plant available for bees. I think we're seeing a lot more attention to what bees need, and we're trying to come up with some ideas on how to keep them healthy going all the way through.
1: Awesome. So connecting that back to our students, what do you think are some skills and things that students will need to be successful in this industry or kind of similar industries? Just
2: keeping as creative as possible and thinking outside the box, looking at the bigger picture, looking at problems from different angles. I think that's really going to help the agricultural industry as a whole, whether it's bees or crops or anything, just having a real creative eye and perspective to some of these problems. That's where the innovation is going to come from. And I think it's really encouraging because I think a lot of young people have that creativity in them. So I think students need to hang on to that, keep dreaming, keep exploring different ideas, keep failing, because failure um, helps you to go down a different path than you may have thought of before and try something new. And then suddenly you may arrive at something that actually does work. And I hope students keep the dedication that they have right now to the environment and to um, making sure there's clean water, clean habitat for our bees and for growing our food and so on.
1: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn, for joining me today and sharing your passion and your love of bees with us. And I'm sure that our listeners will learn a little bit about bees and the importance of their role to the agricultural industry. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, I'm here with Don Alexander, who is a 5th grade teacher in Redmond, Oregon at Tom McCall Elementary School. How are you doing today, Don? I'm doing
3: great, Jessica.
1: Thanks. Well, let's just start by having you share with us a little bit about your background and your training in education.
3: I graduated from the University of Nevada in Reno with a bachelor's in agriculture education. And then I got a master's degree in curriculum and instruction from Leslie College. And then I've been teaching elementary grades for
1: 36 years. Awesome, and what is your current role? Uh, Right now I'm teaching fifth grade. So what does your uh, typical day look like?
3: Yeah, this year it's way different. The kids are still online, so we're doing distance teaching. So I'm on a computer. I go into my classroom and kind of sit in there by myself and teach them through the computer and different avenues with technology and distance learning I'm trying to do you know as much agriculture as I can and just the regular you know routine stuff but it's really challenging and they really want to be back in the classroom and I think for a big reason for them is the socializing.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, learning for you and the students and kind of all figuring it out together I'm sure.
3: Yes, exactly.
1: Why do you think it's important for people to know about and understand agriculture?
3: Well, bottom line, I think that students need to know where their food and fiber comes from. I think there's so much disconnect today because we just go to the store and use our phones and computers to order what we need. And I think students need to gain a perspective that all farmers work hard to produce the good food that we eat and that they care about the land and animals that they grow. And we all have more to learn about agriculture in our immediate and global community. So what would you say is the best part of your job? (laughs) Definitely the students. I love getting to work with young people. They're the future leaders and decision makers and the caretakers of our land. So when they get excited about what I'm teaching, and then they take it upon themselves to learn beyond what I'm teaching, they end up teaching me. So I love that part.
1: That's awesome. What would you say is the most challenging or the worst part of your job?
3: (laughs) Right now, teaching and seeing students only through a computer. Technology can be great, but it's uh, no substitute for having the kids in the classroom to interact with. And I love doing hands-on projects and small group and partner activities. So if nothing else, I hope that through this pandemic that we realize computers cannot replace everything. Yeah, that's, that's the most challenging right now. So what originally inspired you to become an educator? Growing up, I knew I wanted to do something in agriculture. My dad worked on different registered Hereford cattle ranches while I was growing up. And so I knew I always wanted to do something in agriculture. Uh, When I started college, I thought maybe ag journalism or research But then in one of my freshman classes, I met a girl that she was majoring in ag education and I ended up becoming friends with her and then decided that that's what the field I wanted to pursue. But 40 years ago, it was a little harder for women to be high school ag teachers. And so I started substitute teaching in elementary schools. And that's when I realized that I could teach this age group uh, more about
1: agriculture and possibly make an impact there. That's awesome. How did you make that switch to elementary ed early on? Uh, Well, while I was substitute teaching
3: and because we lived in Reno, my dad was working for the university then at the main station farm. So we lived right there in a university town and I was basically just took some night classes and a few other classes to get my elementary certificate. And then in the course of substitute teaching, kind of worked at a couple of schools a lot. And so then that was one of the principals at one of those schools ended up hiring me to be a third grade teacher at that time.
1: That's great. I love that story. Why do you take extra initiative to incorporate agriculture and food curriculum into your classroom?
3: I grew up in agriculture, but there's so much to learn about agriculture. I'm learning something new every day that pertains to our ag industry. And it's so fascinating to learn what farmers and ranchers are doing now to increase production, to feed the growing population, yet they're doing it on less land with less impact and more efficiency. And I just feel like that's something that everybody needs to know about. And a huge part of our curriculum nowadays is STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. And so I feel like agriculture is like, they've always been STEM. So it's just a natural lead to teaching. And I could teach ag through STEM all day long. There's so
1: many topics that ag covers. So it's like, why wouldn't I teach agriculture? <laughs> what are some of those natural connections that you see with agriculture and STEM?
3: Well, just about anything in our food and fiber system, there's, you know, careers and life cycles. And I mean, agriculture has so much math in it and reading. I love how the children's book industry nowadays, there's so many awesome ag books out there. You know, as a teacher, that's a great stepping off point, you know, is to use a book, you know, an accurate ag book to begin a lesson and get discussion and questions going. The reading part leads into speaking and writing and science and even ag history, which can be a big part of the social studies curriculum.
1: What changes in your classroom when using food and agriculture? What are your students' response to you integrating these themes?
3: Well, I think the level of engagement and interest definitely increases for students. They see what they're learning is relevant to their lives, and it's interesting for them. For example, when I decided that I wanted to spend a whole year learning about pollinators, bees in particular, and their importance to not only our environment, but to agriculture, because bees are responsible for one in every three bites of food that we take. And so I wanted students to, you know, kind of realize the importance of them in our food system. So I planned several projects and activities. Uh, we learned about ag commodities in Oregon that depends on the bees and then use spheros to program our presentations. I had a beekeeper come in as a guest speaker. And we learned about how bees are rented out and trucked to other states, such as California, where they pollinate the almond orchards. We had a honey tasting event, which was a favorite event for the whole year. But I knew that this all hit home with them when I had several students come to me more towards the end of the year. And they wanted to do something to help other people become more aware of our bee friends. So they made posters, flyers. Some of them created PowerPoints to share with others. I helped a group of them purchase some pencils with um, Save the Bees logo, on it. And they sold those in school. Some of them made items with honey and sold them to other students. We wore t-shirts with bee kind. We made mason bee houses for the students to take home. They all wanted to take on these different projects. And so we were kind of doing this whole menagerie of activities the last, you know, six weeks of school. And then the money that they raised from the items that they sold, we ended up donating them to a local beekeeper to use that money to help her be business. So my hope is that the students continue to use that knowledge and teach others.
1: That's awesome. You started it by having the students introduced to the topic, and then they they ran with it, and they came up with these projects on their own? Exactly. That wasn't in my
3: year-long plan, so that was like just a huge bonus for me when that happened. So it was amazing,
1: yeah. Yeah, what a great project-based learning. I mean, all of the skills that are associated with those little mini businesses that the students had the opportunity to run really integrate so many of the subjects that you've mentioned and that you're trying to instill in your students to begin with. What are some of those kinds of secondary benefits that you noticed from this project?
3: I still have some of the kids come back and share some of their bee, you know, experiences or things that they've done since then. That kind of like warms my heart. So, or they'll send me an email or a note or even something else, maybe not even bee related, but just ag related. And even through social media, some of them that, you know, I'm now friends with, they'll, you know, send me different ag articles and things like that. And there were a lot of parents that became involved that year, too. So it kind of extended beyond our community and just in the classroom and filtered out through the whole school. So I thought that was pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. So now have these since become a trend or something that you'll continue to do in your classroom or is it another topic that you'll focus on in years to come?
3: well i I do something with bees every year. It's a little more challenging this year, um but I'm hoping the students that here shortly will be back in the classroom and we can do a little more hands on because I try to write some type of a grant through the Redmond Garden Club last year, we were kind of focusing on food preservation, and so we were growing you know some radishes to pickle and you know can and just so you know, students kind of learned that whole aspect of our food system. My teaching partner, she got a hydroponic system one year. So she grew some of the lettuce and then we ended up kind of combining our two projects and making salsa with the students and and things like that. So I try to find something new. And that usually comes from me reading articles or something current, you know, that's hitting the social media airwaves. But I try to do something different, but I love the bees
1: and I think they're so important and students really got into that. So I continue to do the bees every year. What other projects and themes have you done over the years that have really stuck with students or inspired them in specific ways?
3: Well, when I was teaching third grade and fourth grade, because that was more local history, um, we kind of hit more with the Oregon commodities, trying to hit like the top 10 grown commodities in Oregon. Uh, just learning something about that. Um, Oregon Pioneers and just how they settled here and what they started growing. So a little bit of ag history, maybe a timeline even of, you know, ag implements and technology and how far we've come and just actually a short period of time. So we try to do a lot of that to kind
1: of get that aspect of it too. What is your favorite aspect of incorporating these themes into your classroom?
3: I would say when the students become interested, I had a student last year that I only did a few activities at the beginning of the year. I try to start with how much does agriculture impact your day? And so we we did an activity there. And shortly after that, she started preparing this little PowerPoint presentation on hydroponics and pollinators and several different topics. But she put together this whole little presentation and presented it to the students in the classroom. So sometimes I, you know, when I have students like that, I just kind of go off of what their interests are too to kind of help get us started, I guess.
1: That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about your students. Do they come from ag backgrounds? Is this something that's really new to them? You know, I I used to think so that Central Oregon was
3: that there was a lot of agriculture in the area and, and there was, um, but there doesn't you know, seem to be as much anymore. Um, When my son got into FFA and 4-H, you know, he obviously had animals because that's what my background was in, but there's so much more to that. And I think that's why a lot of students get into those programs. We have some small acreages around the area and everything, but there's so many students that don't have any ag background. I might have a couple of students because I'm fifth grade. I have a couple of them every year that are involved in 4-H. But I also think that by doing some of ag activities that i do a lot of them end up coming back into my classroom and teaching my current students lessons about agriculture and even last year we had the opportunity to have the ag literacy from oregon project come in and they presented it to the whole school so they had ffa students in each of the classrooms working you know together to do an ag project so i thought that was pretty interesting
1: yeah, and I have to say that's one of my favorite parts for my role in coordinating these efforts on a statewide level is really those high school students coming full circle and going back to oftentimes their own elementary schools and and presenting what knowledge they have about agriculture to students. It's it's a really, like I said, full circle experience, and I also think it can be pretty humbling for high school students to get up in front of a fifth grade class and realize that, hey, there's a lot of great questions that these students ask and and things that I might know not know the answer to. Um,
2: exactly.
3: Right yeah, exactly. Well, and then the other piece too, I mean, the fifth graders just like they idolize the high school students. So I feel like they can sometimes get the message across better than i can because they can relate to them and they're you know closer in age but they they just love to ask questions and find out more from the high school students
1: neat connection how does teaching agriculture connect to your students futures
3: Well, so you obviously know that by 2050, the world's population is expected to be over nine and a half billion people. And so I think to be able to feed and clothe the world, we need to rely heavily on agriculture and new technology, hard workers and creative minds will be needed to achieve this. So in the last 20 years, agriculture has expanded, giving students a wide variety of careers in ag to choose from. So like not only just in the production end of it, but marketing agribusiness, technology for sure, um, microbiology, mechanics, communications, and so much more. So I feel like the ag industry is one of the smartest career paths that students can take. So I, I want students to know that they have a ton of options for their future.
1: That's awesome and very inspiring and enlightening, I think, often to the students as well. Just They might not be familiar with these things before, and they leave their year with you, really just with their eyes open to these experiences and to these opportunities that are available to them. So that's pretty cool.
3: Right, I guess too, cause I consider myself a lifelong learner. So as I learn more about the importance of agriculture and then read all the negativity about ag on social media that I just feel like we need more ag- advocates and we need people to see the connections that farmers and food and the connections to our land and how hard they're working to put the food on our table. So I, I feel like students at, at the elementary level, they're curious. They love to ask questions. And I feel like if you open that door, a lot of times they'll take the lead on it. So I love this age group.
1: What are some things that you hope to do in the future, pandemic or not? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, um Fortunately for you and and the Oregon Ag in the Classroom program, I'm one of the subscribers to your monthly subscription box, so I feel like that's a great place for me. At least, even you know, online the students have a take-home kit every month to learn something about. So last month when we learned about Christmas trees and we've learned about cranberries, and they've taken a couple of virtual field trips. So the materials that Ag in the Classroom provides is is a great place for me to do during digital, you know, learning because you guys have done a lot of the work for us teachers, but I did put in a grant with the Redmond garden club this year, and we're going to do planting seeds. And so we're doing a take-home kit for them to take home here after the first of the year. And we'll have a journal, things like that, trying to do some online activities, guest speakers, you know, just with the whole planting. And then hopefully when they come back in the classroom, I have an indoor greenhouse, um, that we can kind of get back in to production and do some more exciting things with that.
1: As our listeners may or may not know, Central Oregon has a very short growing season.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: so school gardens are really kind of not an option, not a practical option, because really by the time students are leaving school in June, there's not, you know, it hasn't really warmed up enough to be very fruitful. So how have you used your little indoor greenhouse
3: Well, and that's exactly right, because I kept reading about all these school garden programs and everything happening. And I thought, oh, what are we going to do here? And how's that going to operate? And then I just by doing more research and everything and got, you know, found an indoor greenhouse that would fit in my classroom and still, you know, have my students in there so they could be a part of it every single day. And so that's what I did with some of the grants, too, was to get that and because you know, over the last few years, I would wait until after spring break to get our seeds planted and everything. So we could do that part. And obviously by the time school ended, they still wouldn't really be to a point where we could, you know, do a lot with them. So the greenhouse has really helped with that because I started on day one. And that was my plan with the radishes too, was because they're so fast growing that then we could do some, you know, food preservation and learn about canning and you know, different things like that. So um, hopefully if if we're back in the classroom pretty soon, I'm hoping that I can
1: pick that project up again too. That's awesome. Like you said, it almost has some benefits in just proximity. These students see the greenhouse every day, they're working right next to it. So it gives them this ability to have it in the back of their mind. So that's a really neat piece that you've incorporated into your classroom where and other teachers might be able to be inspired by that idea as well
3: <laughs> right that and then I think that with the, my teaching partner having the hydroponic system too so we kind of you know share both of the things and the students go back and forth between the classrooms and because that's another really important um, part of growing crops now is the hydroponic systems, so that helps too with us
1: so John, you are very well-versed in incorporating agriculture into your classroom. What recommendations would you have for teachers who are just starting out? What is something that you'd say to a new teacher who's inspired to incorporate these themes into their classroom, but maybe hasn't started yet?
3: Well, as I mentioned earlier, if you find um, an accurate ag book, which the American Farm Bureau Foundation for Agriculture has some great links to that, as well as like the state Oregon Egg in the Classroom Program or any of the other states. Also, the National Egg in the Classroom Program, there's a great curriculum matrix on their website, and you can search by standards, you can search by subject area. You can spend a ton of time just searching for different lessons. And there's a lot of them on there that are tied to some of the children's literature books, too. So you could start with a book and do an activity. All kids love, you know, the hands on the Oregon Egg in the Classroom program. You guys provide materials for some of the activities. Uh, I know other states do the same thing. Um, It's just an easy way to get started. And then the kids will take it from there and let you know
1: what they want to start learning about and doing. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Dawn, and for all the work that you do inspiring future agriculturalists and your students that come through your classroom every year. So thank you so much. And yeah, we look forward to working with you in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Jessica.
3: I so enjoy it.
0: Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website and our Facebook page. For more information on the Agriculture in the Classroom programs in your local area, visit agclassroom.org. Remember to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service and visit the show notes to learn more. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field.